First, I'd like to say good morning, High Rock and Mars Hill. Good morning to all you beautiful mothers. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers that goes above and beyond. This is the Mother's Day. So I pray that God would bless each and every one of you and knowing that we are the children of the Most High God. Um, I want to share just for one minute. I, I was given um, permission to share a little, just a little bit, very quick. So Pastor Joe would just let me know. Um, <laughs> after last week meeting, I'm not going to talk a lot about the meeting. After last week meeting, I was uh, the Lord had dropped in my spirit to to fast, and my fast was for each and every one of you, the whole church and also for the people that wasn't there. So I went home and I started my fast. Praise God to, for that. And uh, no tea, which is my breakfast in the morning time. So I didn't have the tea. And a couple of days I was feeling a little bit down and out and tired and hungry. But I still kept that fast because I know that God was able to keep me through all of that. So I drink, I had water during the day and I didn't eat meals all day long. And it was just such a joy to turn down my plate, not for Betty, but for each and every one of you here at Mars Hills. And I wanna say that I love each and every one of you, no matter where you at, no matter what you look like, I love you with the love of Christ. So I said, God bless all of us today. I'm a little nervous. After I go through my fast, Pastor Joe called me on Thursday and said, hey, Mom, Betty, would you like to read the scripture? And not really thinking about it, and I said, oh, I, took, I was like, yes. And then when he told me where to read, I went in the book, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, I can't do this. You know? But I know that the God I serve, that he's able to have me to stand. And even though I might not have, and I always like to share this with you, because I don't have the education that some of you all have standing here. But I would like you to know I have the word of God in my heart that helps me to go each and every day of my life. And I am blessed because God has blessed me. So I stand here today nervous. I call my baby boy. He said, Mom, you can do this. And he started breaking down all these syllables. And I didn't know what he's talking about. I was just like, I don't know nothing about all that stuff. And, and, uh, but he was, he's such an encouragement to me. He's my baby. I already talked to God about it. I was just like, Lord, I don't know. This is, I said some words in here. I'm not sure if I can pronounce all these words. <laughs> but you know what? God take my, I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. So God lets me know that I'm not perfect, but he's perfect. So he takes what I have to say and he turns it into something beautiful. That's what God always do. He takes my stuff and he makes all of it beautiful. Then I call my pastor standing here. And he said, Mom Betty, 
He said, you can do this. And I'm just like, oh, Pastor, I don't know how to pronounce some words. I don't know how to say this. So he said, read over it a couple of times. And then he had me to read it over the phone. And I read it to him. And he said, my baby, you can do this. So here I am today. <laughs> here I am today. And um, I say, don't look to me. Look to Jesus, Amen. who is the perfect one. So we look to him today. So you're already standing, so I don't have to say that. <laughs> and it says, today's scriptures reading comes from the book, the book of Hebrew, 9, 1 through 14. Please follow along in your own Bible on the screen in front or simply listen at the passage is read aloud. There are also copies of Bible on the card in the back. So you can either check the screen or you can get a Bible. So as I come from Hebrew, the ninth chapter, verse 1 through 14, I said, Lord, please speak to my heart today, Lord God. Please speak to our hearts today, God. Because Betty doesn't stand here alone. She stands here, God, because you are here with me. And I have all of my sisters and brothers and my little, little children here, Lord God, to surround me. And most of all, God, I have you. So, Lord, I pray, Father, that they will not hear the words that come from my mouth, but they would hear the words that I speak of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that they may be blessed. Every heart may hear what the word is speaking. Every ear would be open. And we would hear what thus says the word of God. And we would know that we cannot do, we cannot change ourselves. But reading this word, it shows how God paid the price, tore the veil, that we was able to come not to a priest, but we was able to come boldly before the throne of God because what Jesus has done for us. So, Lord... Have your way in this sanctuary. Be glorified in all of us, the children, everyone. Be glorified, God. And Lord, as I open my mouth, speak, Lord, and help me, God. As I speak to your people, I thank you and praise you for this day in Jesus' name. To you be glory and praise. Amen. The first nine uh, in chapter one, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were a lampstand and a table with this consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind, behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna 
Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark was a cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything has been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on, the, on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was shown by this, that the way of the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of worshipers. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial. Washing external regulation applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as the high priest of good things, they are now already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hand that it's, it that is to say is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats, bulls, and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on, sprinkled on those who were ceremonial, unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that leads to death, so that we may serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. May you be seated. Morning, everybody. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors at High Rock Church, and it's great to be 
worshiping with all of you this morning. And uh, as has been said before by Pastor Ophelia, if you're new, we're especially glad that you have joined us and hope that you can stick around afterwards. So uh, as nearly all of you know, unless you are brand new to our church or um, have been away for a long time, uh, my time as the lead pastor of this church is nearing its end. Uh, In fact, including today, this Sunday morning, I have just three weeks left. And so with these uh, last three Sundays and these last three sermons, uh, I wanted to spend the last time that I have um, focusing on important thoughts or teachings that I want to, I want to be self, selfish and tell you the stuff I really want to tell you uh, before I go. Um, you know, Paul, at the end of his letters, would always kind of sum them up with, here are some, you know, essential things. I want make sure you greet these people with this. Make sure that you don't do this any longer. Make sure that you keep worshiping together. And meet. he would kind of end with kind of, hey, make sure all this stuff happens. And I, I, I have uh, identified more with Paul in the last couple of months than I ever have before. In that sense of, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm I'm leaving this church, and I'm I'm like, oh no, I got to tell them this. They got to, oh, I hope they re- remember this. And so um, I want to use these last three sermons to to. Try to leave you with the stuff that I think is most important. So that's my plan. Uh, These last three weeks include kind of my parting thoughts um, to the church that I have loved and pastored for 11 years. And um, I'm going to root many of these thoughts in the book of Hebrews for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, I'm just really fond of the book of Hebrews. And I think there is just this uh, ridiculous amount of depth and beauty and practicality in the book, although sometimes it's hidden in the complexity of it, Um, but also because we have just finished our sermon series on the book of Exodus, or the first 20 chapters of Exodus, um, and Hebrews is deeply tied into the stories of Exodus, and so uh, it has a nice connection there as well with what we've been talking about. So, Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, uh, for the most part, you're going to want to have them open to Hebrews chapter 9, where we will spend most of our time in the Scriptures today. However, we are actually going to start at the beginning, uh, back in Genesis chapter 3, if you would like to turn there first. So, I think we're probably all at least somewhat familiar with what's going on in the early parts of Genesis. Um, God created a garden sanctuary, he called it Eden. And in that garden sanctuary, he created uh, his image bearers, Adam and Eve. But then Adam and Eve disobeyed the law of God, and the, and the stain of sin marked their, the hearts of God's creation. And so uh, there was a problem. It was no longer possible for a holy God to live in fellowship with these unholy people. And so, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, we read, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The sin of Adam and Eve drove them out of the garden and out of God's presence because being in his holy presence would have, as unholy beings, would have destroyed them. And so God graciously drives them away from his presence and into the wilderness. And we're told in verse 24 that after he drove them out, in order to keep them out, 
he placed on the east side of the garden this flaming, flashing sword, kind of flashing back and forth, as well as cherubim or angels to kind of guard the entryway toward the tree of life and the presence of God himself. And so the image that is given to us in the beginning of Scripture is of a creation that has been driven from its creator, no longer able to live in fellowship with him anymore, no longer able to approach or address him or take a walk together in the cool of the day, because standing in their way is death. And if they try to access him through those flaming, flashing swords, they will fall on their heads and they are done. And that is the opening to our story with, the, with our relationship with God. The chapters that then follow in Genesis and in Exodus speak to kind of the first steps of reunification. First through God's covenant with Abraham and then through his covenant with Moses and Israel. And that is where we left things off last week with the nation of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. But if you remember, even when God had... Um, kind of begun to reestablish that relationship with the people, it was, it was still in a, a deeply limited way. You remember that when they got to Sinai, they weren't allowed to walk onto the mountain and into the presence of God. Only Moses was allowed to do that, right? Moses was the representative of the people, so he was able to go on the mountain and to meet with God. But everyone else was told, stay away, stay at a distance, keep, keep off the mountain. Because to walk onto that holy mountain as an unholy people would have spelled certain death for them. And so only Moses, who is acting as mediator, is allowed to go and to speak on their behalf. And there was thunder, and there was lightning, and there was this dense cloud that descended onto the mountain. And so Moses alone was allowed to enter into it. And while we didn't get into the rest of Exodus that comes after chapter 20, if we had kept going in that book, then what we would have found, we would have come to the chapters that then established a tabernacle out in the wilderness, the tabernacle would become the new place where God and his people would meet and where the priests would do the work of purification and, and sacrifice. And so this is what is then described to us in Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 again quickly, uh, just so we kind of set the physical context in our minds. Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 5. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. You might also know that or if you read, uh, as the mercy seat, um, but we cannot discuss these things in detail right now. So the authors of Hebrews basically sets it up and says, but we don't have time to talk about it in detail. But we're not the author of Hebrews, so we're going to talk about it in detail right now. Uh, so verses 1 through 5 basically begin to describe the, the physical setup of the tabernacle. And so I'm going to give you kind of an overview on the tabernacle itself. John is going to bring up uh, an image here that we can kind of use to orient ourselves. So 
this, is, it, this doesn't include every piece, but it includes the substantial pieces. And you can see that um, over on the, the right side, that's where the entryway to the tabernacle was. Importantly, meaningfully, beautifully, on the east side of the tabernacle was the entry, right? So God is establishing a tabernacle. He's establishing a new place where he and his people are going to meet. This is, gonna, this is a really, really junky version of the Garden of Eden, right? And he had set up on the east side those guards, those flaming, flashing swords and the cherubim that were there to keep people from entering in. But now as he's beginning the process of reunification in the tabernacle where this will become the place that we meet with God, on that east side, he sets up the door. That's where people will begin to, to access it. And so uh, you have the entry on the east side. Then the, the next step as you come in is the outer courtyard. Uh, the outer courtyard is the place where um, anyone could be. This was the spot that was kind of open to all. And it included two primary features that you'll see there. Uh, the first is the altar of the burnt offering. So uh, if you had uh, animals that were going to bring, bring in, if you had goats or bulls that were going to be sacrificed, you brought them in. There were these four horns that kind of came off of the altar of burnt offerings. It's also called the brazen altar sometimes. Um, and the animals would be tied to the horns that were on there, and that's where they would be sacrificed so that the blood could be used for uh, the sacrifice, uh, so the sacrificial blood. So that's the first thing that you have. Then the second thing you had is called the laver or the cleansing pool. That's where the priests, after performing the sacrifices, would wash their hands and, if necessary, their feet so that they were clean and pure before they then took the next step to enter into the holy place. So two primary features in the outer sanctuary, importantly, where everyone was allowed to be. Then you have the second place, which is the holy place. And this is where only the priests were allowed to enter in. Uh, it had the table of the showbread where they would put uh, 12 loaves of bread for a week long, each loaf representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of the week, the priests alone were the ones who consumed all that bread. Uh, that kind of symbolized God's provision. There was also the menorah or the lampstand that had the seven candles that were lit. And the priests would go in and they would light those or trim the wicks, you know, and kind of keep the candles burning. And that would be the light. God's light, his truth, his leading of his people. And then lastly, you had the altar of incense. Uh, you would bring coal from the altar of burnt offerings or the brazen uh, altar into the altar of incense. Then you would place those coals on the altar of incense, and then the kind of fumes would come up from the coals, and that represented uh, our inter God, Jesus' kind of intercession for us, right, like coming before those prayers being raised up. And so that's what you had in the holy place. That was where the priests could go. Not everyone else was allowed. And then you had the final place, which is the Holy of Holies. And uh, that was the place that only the high priest could enter, and he only one time every year. Um, the whole, most holy place only had one piece of furniture in it. It had the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, you had the jar of manna. You had uh, Aaron's budding staff. You had the stone tablets from uh, the Sinai Covenant. And then on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, you had the mercy seat. And on each side of the mercy seat, you had a cherubim, like an angel, a gold angelic kind of thing sitting on each side of the mercy seat. So just like in Eden, 
where you had these cherubim standing and guarding the way to the presence of God. Now inside of the Holy of Holies, you have cherubim again on each side of the mercy seat, and it is above the mercy seat and between, so you pour the blood on the mercy seat and the cherubim are here, and it was right there that God said, this is where I will meet you. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God says, "From now, for now, this is the spot where I will meet you. But that happened once per year with the high priest, and that was it. So that's the basic setup of the tabernacle. And if it isn't already fairly obvious, much of the point of Hebrews bringing all of this up and, and kind of giving this image to people that would have probably known it a little better is to show us how inaccessible God is during this time. You could get to him better than you could in Eden, but it was just one man and for him just once a year. So there was nearly no way to God, deeply limited access to his presence. That's what the author of Hebrew wants us to see. So what we have established here is kind of this, it's a mid-stage access to our God. Sin had left us no access, just a flaming, flashing sword and some angels to keep us out. The tabernacle provided this kind of temporary improvement to the situation in that now we had a bit of access to him, but that was, as I said, once, per, you know, once a year and for one man. So it was, a, it was a partial improvement on the way to what would become the full and final access. Uh, if you remember that story in uh, Mark chapter 8 with the blind man who comes to Jesus and Jesus touches him and says, uh, do you see anything? And he's like, I, I see something. I think I see trees walking around, right? And then Jesus touches him again, and then the guy can see everything perfectly clearly. Right? It's this like two-stage miracle, and the, the middle stage is, is, is there, but it's not all that helpful. It's fuzzy. It's unclear. We're in a similar situation kind of in covenant in, in the, the reunification process. Uh, we're, we're, we're started in total isolation. We took a step towards access, but it's a very menial and not very helpful step overall, but we're on our way to something else. And so we're told in verses 6 and 7 that when everything had been arranged, uh, you're good, John, leaving it down. When everything had been arranged physically like this, then the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, that only once a year, and uh, importantly, never without blood. The high priest could never enter into the Holy of Holies without blood. If he did, he was dead. That was it. So you all, he always had to have blood from the sacrifice on the brazen altar or the altar of burnt offerings. He always had to be bringing that blood into the Holy of Holies as he came, um, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So we're told that uh, the priests entered into the, the holy place regularly. That is at least once a day, sometimes more, depending on the situation. Um, and they made sacrifices there. So, if you were a local farmer, and the tax collector came to your farm and said, hey, Bob, how much did you make last month? Because you got to pay your taxes. And you, as Bob, kind of, you know, in a weak moment, fudge the numbers and don't tell the tax collector everything that you actually made, and then, therefore, don't pay your full taxes. And the tax collector goes off and heads back to, you know, to his work. And then later in the day... You, Bob, are feeling bad about yourself. You're like, oh, man, I just broke the seventh and the eighth commandments. I lied to the guy about how much income I made, and I stole from, like, the authorities who were supposed to receive these taxes. Like, I feel really bad. So that's part of your daily sin. You recognize that sin. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I feel bad. That's what's happening out in the holy place 
with the regular priests on a daily basis, right? They're going in, there are daily sacrifices, they're bringing that blood in, they're putting the bread up, they're lighting the candles, they're offering, that's a, it's a constant repetitious thing, just dealing with the day-to-day life of Israel and the sins that are committed, trying to bring a little bit of purification to an entirely broken people. So that, you've got that happening. But we're also told that annually the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to atone for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. Again, the image here is that while there may have been daily sins that were being committed over and over and the priests were out in the holy place trying to take care of that, there were also unknown sins that violated the holiness of God, and these sins would build up and build up and build up and build up, and then once every year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, pour the blood on the mercy seat, and all of a sudden, it was kind of the, that buildup of all those unknown sins that you didn't know just kind of went down. If you're a Lost fan, uh, think season two, The Hatch, where there's this giant gravity, um, 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 what's that thing? Magnetic force, right? This giant magnetic force, and the magnetism builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, and there's a button in the room, and you got at the end of like 104 minutes, you got to push the button, and then it, and all the magnetism goes away, and then it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, and then you push the button, and then it goes down, and then in just every 104 minutes, you got to do the same thing to decrease the magnetism. It's not doing anything. You're not getting rid of the magnetic problem that exists right outside your steel walls. You're just kind of getting alleviating it a little over and over. So year after year. The priest would go in, and all those sins, and they bring it down, and all those sins, and just every year, same thing, over and over and over. It's not doing anything. It's not solving anything. You're not fixing a problem. You're just kind of alleviating it for a moment so you can get by for another year until the next, right? That's the system that they were in, over and over. Exhausting. All that blood, all those animals, but they couldn't cleanse your conscience from sin. It, they couldn't make us right before God. It could make us ceremonially unclean so we could get together for worship again. But it couldn't do any more than that. It's not like the high priest would go in, offer that sacrifice, then blow open the curtain and invite everyone who is now purified to come in and experience the joy of fellowship with their creator. No, like... He would offer that sacrifice, and we still stayed far away and distant from the presence of God because it wasn't doing, there was no ultimate efficacy in the sacrifices that were being laid down. And so verses 9 and 10 say, This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food, drink, and various ceremonial washings external regulations applying until the time of the new order. This exhausting and bloody system was never a sufficient way to move forward. It was this dim image in the distance, something like trees walking around, but it wasn't the ultimate solution that God had planned for his people. And then we read these glorious words. In verses 11 to 14. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves 
but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats, the blood of bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The picture that is given here is incredible, right? Uh, John, do you mind bringing up the tabernacle slide one more time? Jesus enters the tabernacle for us, not the physical tabernacle of this world. He didn't walk into that tabernacle right there. He didn't walk into the tabernacle that was made by human hands. He entered in through the greater, the more perfect tabernacle, not made by human hands, i.e. the one that was made by God's hands, i.e. maybe we want to start seeing Eden here a little bit again. And he went through those flaming, flashing swords that were falling on this willing, sacrificial lamb of, of, of Jesus. And when he enters, and this is the beauty. Can you, John, keep it up, okay? When he enters, he goes to the brazen altar. He goes to the altar of burnt offerings, but there's no animal there, right? Again, not this actual one. In the heavenlies, right? He goes to the place where you would put the sacrifice, but there is no sacrifice there. And instead, he himself is bound to a cross, right? He is the one that is put up on the altar of burnt offerings so that his body is the one that is destroyed and consumed, his blood poured out. And then, because he's quite impressive, he walks his own blood right through the tabernacle, through the holy place, and into the most holy place. And he pours out his blood on the mercy seat before the Father, and he says, here, this is enough. It is finished. It's done. System ended. The new system is here, and it is eternal. And it never, here, for anyone feeling the slightest bit of guilt for your sin today, and it never needs to be done again. I.e., and this is going to sound deeply unfair because it is, you don't suffer for your sins. You'll suffer temporal, meaning like I shouldn't have gotten angry and kicked that stone wall and now my foot hurts, right? But you don't suffer eternally for your sins. You are even not guilty of those sins. You are not condemned for those sins because Jesus has died for you. He has taken your sin as his own. He has taken your shame as his own. He has taken your condemnation and and your punishment, the death, the the distance, the, the closed relationship from the Father as his own. And that is why the author of Hebrews writes, sure, the blood of bulls and the blood of goats can make you outwardly clean, but how much more then would the blood of Jesus cleanse your conscience from acts that lead to death so that you might serve the living God? You are free from your sin. Your conscience need not bear it any longer, so go and serve the living God who has sacrificed himself for your sake. 
This is why when Jesus died, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was ripped into two, because his sacrifice had opened the path for us to enter into the presence of the living God. This is why in the following chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, which no one would have ever had in the history of mankind at this point, nobody was confident to enter the Holy of Holies. They weren't even confident for the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies. They sat there on bated breath just hoping he would come back out and worry that his body would rot in there for the next I mean nobody with confidence to enter into the presence of God but somehow now we have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body and since we have a great high priest over the house of God let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so, if I get three final sermons, I'm going to start those by saying this to you, and it's also the tagline for our sermon series, John sermon series. This isn't Sinai. You don't have to stand at a distance. Because you're not allowed to come close to the mountain and draw close to God. You don't have to stay away because your sin disqualifies you from his presence. Because as the writer of Hebrews will say just a couple of chapters later, you haven't come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire. You haven't come to darkness and to gloom and to storm. You haven't come to a trumpet blast or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged it to speak no more. Because they couldn't bear what was commanded That's not where you are. That's not where you have come to. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels gathered in joyful assembly, to the church, to the firstborn whose names are written forever in heaven. You have come to God, to the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You have come to the sprinkled blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel ever could. You don't have to stay away. Quite contrary, you are invited to come in all the way into the holy of holies and to experience the presence of God himself. Don't sin, okay? Just don't. We're going to talk about that part next week in significant detail. Something else I want to tell you. Don't sin. Don't violate the holiness of God. But when you do, don't hide your face from him, feeling like you're unworthy, feeling ashamed, feeling that your your failures have somehow disqualified you from entering and experiencing the presence of God. Remember this passage. Remember what Jesus has done for you and boldly enter into the presence of the living God, not because you deserve it, not because you have the right to be there, but because Jesus, by his blood, has given you the right to be there. So join him there. Enter into God's presence every day in prayer and in study and in fellowship. Don't stand at a distance from a God who is finally, after all that time, inviting you in.
I want to return to the tabernacle image for, for a thought. Thanks, John. <clears throat> Look at the altar of the burnt offerings, or the brazen altar, where the animals were tied and sacrificed. And just notice for a second where it is at in the overall structure. It's in the outer courtyard. It's in the place where everyone was allowed to gather. The final chapter of Hebrews, chapter 13, in verses 11 and 12 says this. John, do you mind keeping it up for me? Thanks. says this. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't do it in the temple area. He was taken outside the city, outside the holiness of Jerusalem. He died in the wilderness, out in that outer court where the sinners talk and tread. He died out there and then by the power of his own blood, put us on his shoulders and took us with him into the presence of God. Ephesians 2 says that those who are his disciples are already seated with him there now. You and I, we're here. But we're also there, seated with him in the heavenly realms. It is an incredible thing that he accomplished giving us access again to the garden and to the Father and to the joy of his fellowship. So let us not ignore the offer. I want to share just one final, just ridiculously beautiful image. <clears throat> if you go to John chapter 20 and you're reading about the story of the resurrection, you find that eventually... One of the ladies walks into the tomb. Do you remember this part? She walks into the tomb. And remember, there were like benches. Like we think of tombs as like underground. But this was a above ground, right, hole in the rock. And there was a bench carved into the rock where they would lay the body. And when she walks in to the, ben to the, the tomb and she looks at the bench, what does she find? What does she find? She finds there were linens and stuff. But she finds two angels. One where his head would have been. One where his feet would have been. Just like that mercy seat with those two angels sitting on either side and the presence of God right there, right? And she walks in and he's not there. There's just the blood Right? How incredible. Like, you have this mercy seat with blood that's sprinkled, and now it's just bloody, ribbony, tattered shreds that are laying on that bench with angels on either side. And the resurrection becomes our opportunity 
to enter in again to the present, right? It's, this is where we meet him in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, not just physically from the dead, not just the fact that his physical body came back, which is great, but Lazarus got that done, but the fact that his, he who descended into hell, who took our sin and our shame and our condemnation all the way down into the pits, then came back out, and through that resurrection, now we enter into the presence of God himself. This is Easter season still. I know it's like three weeks ago. This is Easter, right? He is risen indeed. And there we find our opportunity to again meet with our creator and to enter into it. And so so what is my, uh, what I want to say there are a million things that will occupy your mind and your time and your heart in the years to come when I won't get to stand here and preach you sermons. And there, there will be work and there will be family and there will be hobbies and there will be video games. And there will be all of these things that will want to occupy your time. There is nothing more important than any of them than entering into the joy and the fellowship of meeting with your creator. Like nothing is more important. There's nothing that is more important. And you will be Satan's greatest gift to himself, curse to us, is our distraction. We are an entirely distracted people all the time, paying no attention. But one of the last things I have to say say to you is don't let him do that to you. Every day. Enter into the joyful presence of the creator. You are allowed now to go all the way in. So don't ignore that offer, that invitation. Let me pray for us to close. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, I think, I feel like I say this too much, but it's just ridiculous what you did. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. It's so elegant. Like, it's so like theologically elegant what you did. It's so... Um, beyond what we could manufacture it's just so perfectly laid out and um, and how you wove those things into your story and how you lived into them day and night how you uh, were just it's overwhelming to look at your life to look at the love that you had the way that you were faithful and obedient to the will of your father and you and you played your part perfectly and we're so grateful for what you have done I pray that you will help us to have uh, hearts that are undivided, just deeply in tune with your presence, constantly entering into your presence. We thank you, Jesus, that you have brought us into the heavenly realms. I I believe that we are seated with you there even now, and we thank you for what you have done. We're so grateful. We give you praise. We worship you. Every part of our lives is eternally dedicated to your worship and to your glory and to the proclamation of your great name. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.